Quarter Rest with Joe Diaco is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and just about anywhere else you might listen to podcasts. Our website is quarterrestpodcast.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at podcastrest or on Facebook at facebook.com slash quarterrestpodcast. If you want to get in touch, feel free to email quarterrestpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it civil and I'll probably respond. You know, on this show, I've put an emphasis on interviewing pop musicians of some stripe or another, by which I mean, you know, some form of popular music, be it rock, indie, or whatever. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. And if you'll indulge me for a moment, I want to get a bit autobiographical. In late 2013, my wife and I, well, we weren't married yet, but I'm going to refer to her as my wife from this point on. My wife and I moved to the Ottawa area following university. I won't go into the precise details of why we moved there and not somewhere else, uh, but suffice to say this was a new city where we knew basically no one. We were moving farther away from friends and family. It was a city neither of us had spent much time in or knew particularly well, and we didn't even have jobs lined up. This was a big and somewhat scary move, and I remember that first year being very difficult at times, as we were totally unmoored from what we knew and scrambling to make things work. But one thing we did early on, and by that I mean in the first few weeks after moving, was instrumental in becoming properly anchored in our new home. You see, me and my wife were both avid choir singers in high school and university. In fact, we met in part through our mutual involvement in a choir at school, and we ended up singing together and a couple of others. So one of the very first things we did after our big move was to look for a community choir to join and become a part of. We found one that we were very excited about, auditioned, and got in. This was a vital move on our part. Being part of that choir brought more value to our lives than I can probably express, although I'll try. Those weekly rehearsals gave us something to look forward to, a mutual activity around which our whole weeks revolved. If we were having a bad day, hey, at least choir was coming on Tuesday. We made our first friends through the choir, we became integrated into the community, and got to know more about the city and its various opportunities through becoming friendly with the other members of that choir. And once a week, we got to drop everything, all those daily stresses, and come together in common purpose with other people of different ages and backgrounds to just sing. I bring all this up to say that community choirs matter. They're important to people. They bring value to people's lives. It's not just choirs, it's also community theater groups, art galleries, dance groups, art collectives, the list goes on. Arts organizations are important. And in a time where anything that isn't turning a fat profit is seen as useless chaff to be discarded or stripped for parts, we need these organizations, probably more than ever before. But sadly, they're often first on the chopping block when someone in charge decides, hey, sacrifices need to be made, budgets need to be cut, it's a real shame, but we all have to tighten our belts. We weren't paid to be a part of that choir. In fact, we paid membership dues every year. 
But it wasn't a lot of money, and it was well worth it because that choir was everything for us during that first year as strangers in a strange land. And without it, I'm not sure we would have stayed. My guest this week was not the director of the Cantata Singers of Ottawa, the choir I've been blabbing about, but she did frequently sub in, lead rehearsals, as well as preparing the choir for an entire concert after the long-established director Michael Zaug left for Edmonton, and there was a transition toward a new leader. But although she can't take all the credit for the wonderful times I had in that choir, this week's guest was a part of it, undeniably. And now, as executive director of Business and Arts Newfoundland and Labrador, she is still heavily involved in that world of nonprofits, arts organizations, albeit in a different province and from a different position. My guest is Amy Henderson. Amy, thank you for joining me on Quarter Rest. Thanks for having me. It's fun. It's fun for me as well. So I just got very autobiographical there, and I'd like to get I'd like to get bio, biographical with you. How did you get into the world of choir singing? I was a really lucky kid who was interested in music from a pretty young age, and I found myself in this move from Toronto to Coburg, Ontario, population seventeen thousand. And one of the first things I did to look for a community in my new town was to join a girls' choir. And this ended up being a girls' choir that toured and competed internationally and had a training choir where I got my first experiences being a leader for young people. It had a youth orchestra where I had my first formative romance and was really a an experience that by the age of 15, I knew that I wanted to be a choral conductor. So when was your first experience actually conducting a choir? Yeah, probably around that age. I think I was 15 or 16 when I started being, they called it the Apprentice Choir. I started being a one of the teen leaders of the Apprentice Choir. I was also teaching piano lessons to younger kids at that age and sort of got the bug for teaching. My parents are both teachers, so it's something that I heard a lot of talk about at the dining room table as a kid and and came pretty naturally to the leadership part of bringing people together and teaching everyone something. And how did your parents feel about this kind of career choice? Um, my parents are very supportive people and were super supportive of musical endeavors and, you know, paid for piano lessons all the way through high school. But I definitely chose to do undergrads in music and education in order to satisfy my parents that I was going to have a good fallback plan in case being a performing musician didn't pan out. Turns out that was Was a pretty good choice. (laughs) (laughs) Was that your original aspiration to be a performing musician? Um, You know, I don't even remember now because... The, my avenue to conducting was always the teaching side of things like it I, and my avenue in music was never performing I never relished being on stage as a young person and to this day I say to my choirs I could live a happy life never performing I think performances are a means to an end because you have to have rehearsals in order you have to have something that drives rehearsals but I'm all about a good rehearsal I love leaving the end of a Tuesday night with no audience and feeling like we all got better together. That's all I need to be happy. So yeah, no, it was never like I was never headed for the stars. I, I just always wanted to to teach. But my favorite place to teach is an ensemble setting. 
what is it about performance that you don't like? Do you get stage fright? Um, no, it just feels like showing off. (laughs) (laughs) It just feels like showy, especially as the conductor. I put energy into it not being about me. Ensemble singing, I want it to be very much everyone feels that they have equal skin in the game and everyone feels that they're coming to this as an equal part of the product. And so if it feels like it's all about me, that doesn't feel fair to the rest of the group. Um, I, I don't want people watching what I do with my body. I want people listening to the choir. So I think it's just, I don't know. Yeah, I, I know performance is important and I know audiences are, are important, but, uh, but yeah, rehearsals are where it's at for me. What makes a, the perfect rehearsal for you? A good variety couple of good challenges pacing where you work hard and you get better but you don't burn the choir out so that they're so tired that they can't think straight by the end of the rehearsal ideally like a few minutes short of that point um something that feels really beautiful so that everyone feels like wow this is amazing music something that feels easy to sing so that you can only focus on the beautiful stuff something that feels really hard to sing so you feel really rewarded and you feel like you learned something like uh, yeah, a good a good balance and a good sense of accomplishment. As a choir member, do you feel the same way? Are you more interested in preparing for a concert than actually doing a performance? Always, yeah. Okay, so it's not just as the director of a choir. No, as, as a, a chorister, as a pianist, give me a give me a practice room. Let me get better. Performance, I'll do it because I have to do it for my grade. But I I don't relish it. That's funny. As a musician, I've always been a little bit the opposite. I I do enjoy practicing and I do enjoy, I mean, I love choir rehearsals. I have to say they are, there's something very magical about just getting together with a group of people, taking a piece of music. And at the beginning, it sounds like one thing. And at the end of the hour or hour and a half or two hours, it sounds like something totally, hopefully much better. better. <laughs> well, if it doesn't sound better, then it's not a wonderful experience. But if it does sound better, then you feel like, wow, we really accomplished something. Totally. So you've directed a few choirs. Can you, you know, maybe give us a, a short list? Yeah, sure. I, I've been really lucky in that I've been able to work with a big variety of choirs. So when I was living in Montreal, I ran the community choral program at McGill Conservatory. So I had... Um, young sort of elementary school kids and high school kids in that choir and I I was the junior choir leader for the Cœur des Enfants de Montréal I had five to seven year olds with that group so starting at the age of five through elementary school through high school and I ran a a women's choir on McGill campus called Les Muses Chorales that was 35-ish singers that were all undergrad and grad students all women um and I had a chamber choir in Montreal called Seraphim that's about 20 voices, adult voices, men and women. Worked with cantata singers in Montreal. I also worked with the St. Lawrence Choir, which is a big oratorial choir that sings symphonic orchestral repertoire. And then here in St. John's now, I work again with, I have a, a 20 voice ensemble, adults, mixed voices. So I've been able, I've been pretty lucky to run the gamut from five years old up to you know, 85 years old. What's the name of the new choir? Project Chamber Voices. Oh, is that project with a K? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a play on <laughs> words. A good guess on my part. It's a play on words because we're project based, so we um, we don't rehearse like every Wednesday night for the year. We do eight rehearsals and a concert in a more focused time frame. Okay. Sort of intentionally designed so that everyone can have their Tuesday night choir and then pick up a project when they want to. So we have a roster of singers and then we say like, hey, we're doing a concert on October 26th. The rehearsals are here. Who's in for this one? So it's a little more like focused work. So we're project based and we're project chamber voices. Although I'm not sure that the play on words is understood as widely as we thought it might be when we designed the name. Oh well. well. It's a good. It's a good name, and I. I can't believe I guessed the K. That's, that's, <laughs> maybe you've seen it somewhere, and it was subliminal. Maybe I've seen it on social media, <laughs> perhaps. So, the project-based approach. What made you go with that? Um, I have two little kids now, and I am not sure that I can handle a lifestyle where I'm out of the house too many nights of the week or not sure that I want to miss bedtime that many nights of the week. Uh, my husband is also a musician and so he has times in the year when he's also out of the house quite a bit. So partly just for selfish reasons that practically that's what made sense. But also St. John's, the rumor is, has more choirs per capita than any other city in North America. So I landed here in a very, very, very rich choral community, and I was terrified. I was here for four years before I even considered trying a project um, of my own, but decided that my soul was shriveling up and I wanted to make music and I, you know, I love a good rehearsal and maybe there are other people around who love a good rehearsal as much as I do. And so this felt like a good way to sort of offer something, but for it to be really limited and to not be um, setting up something where we would be like perceived as poaching singers or that this one we wanted this to be a value added opportunity where people could gain from the experience of a regular choir that they're singing with and then just add this on for fun when they had when they had time and appetite for it and it's turned out to be really interesting that a lot of the singers love the format because they like to do musical theater projects so sometimes they can't do a choir concert because they're in a musical theater project or they like to travel in the winter so they don't want to disappoint the choir by not singing the winter project and this flexibility allows people to come as they are and join for a project when they're available that's great so most of the people are involved in another choir or another singing opportunity yeah 50 percent probably 50 percent are singing in another choir many are music teachers or professional musicians in their own right most of them are trained musicians so they have lots of opportunities and lots going on do you want to talk just a little bit about the choral scene in st john's we yeah newfoundland has a very proud choral music tradition or, or folk music tradition. There's a lot of music that is from here that we are proud of. And singing is a big part of the culture. There's this idea that people get together, people have house parties and kitchen parties where music is central to what's going on. So it's a point of pride that people sing here. It's something people do socially and culturally. Um, and uh, for a long time, it was really strong in the school system. We face now a lot of the same funding struggles that other places do, and music education in the schools is definitely, you know, lives on the chopping block, and we have to advocate really carefully to keep it 
keep it in the programs. But lots of schools have great sounding choirs here. And as a result, there are people who leave school, you know, looking for that community choir to sing with. We have a few amazing leaders in the community who have founded exceptional, exceptional choirs that not only sound great, but also do an amazing job of contributing to the community. We have children's choirs, women's choirs, men's choirs, a symphonic choir, uh, lots of mixed voice choirs of sort of different niches. And this mm. is in, you know, a province with a population of 500,000. So there's lots going on here, Coralie. So choir music is, is part of the culture, you would say. Definitely. Singing is, yeah. Yeah. I've never been to Newfoundland, but I've heard about the kitchen parties. It's a, a famous kind of cultural practice, I guess we could say. Yeah. Is this something that you have partaken in a lot? Do you, do you get to experience the, the musical culture beyond your involvement in the choir? Not so much. The place that I actually see it alive the most is through this organization I work with called Growing the Voices Festival mm -hmm. 500. It, it's the nonprofit organization that once housed this international choral festival here that now has sort of changed their focus to growing choral singing in other ways across the world. And we teach these courses called So You Always Wanted to Sing that are singing rehabilitation opportunities. And it's a lot of people who, in grade two, the nun told them to stand in the back row and mouth the words because they couldn't sing, and it tragically silenced them. And these are people who have mm. spent their lives believing that they, quote, couldn't sing, even though we know scientifically that that's very, very, very often not the case, most often not the case. And so we help people find their voices again. And we talk about why they want to sing or where they want to sing or what their goals are. And often it's these, it's these kitchen parties or singing Christmas carols together or opportunities like this. It's not that I want to be on stage and be famous. It's that I just want to feel that my voice has a place or that I can harmonize and sing along at the next time I, I go to a social gathering. I love performing, but I think it's beautiful that people want to just participate in singing as a small scale social activity totally and it's it's very sad that people would be uh, so dissuaded that they uh, are, are so um lacking in in singing confidence that they would feel that they can't even participate in you know basically small group gatherings of you know people singing christmas carols that's that's very sad it's amazing this program has graduated hundreds of people through this program now we have maximum 18 people enrolled in a class and I think they fill three or four sections a year of people who want to, you know, learn to sing again or learn to sing for the first time. But it's all, it's all adults who have been silenced by one comment or another or one, like some, some element of self-perception. Hmm. So it's usually rooted in maybe childhood or most often a time that yeah, I mean, we, we start the class by sort of asking people to to share what's brought them to this class. And my example about the nun and the mouth the words, that one comes up specifically two or three times a class. Other people, it's my sister was the talented one. And so I didn't sing because she sang so beautifully that I felt like the ugly duckling. And I, you know, I've never mm. sung since. Or, Unfair yeah, this idea that I'm not talented this sort of, mm. yeah, the idea that talent is 
something you're given rather than something that takes a lot of practice and or something that you have to cultivate. And so, right. yeah, often it's a it's a comparison. <laughs> it's feeling like you're overshadowed by someone or 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 hurtful hurtful comments that seem offhand. You know, I can sort of identify with the nun who's trying to get 200 kids to stand up straight and sing something in time for the Christmas concert and just not having time to help each kid find their voice. But it, you don't realize that the offhanded comment like that can be so hurtful and have such a lasting impact. It's an old approach to pedagogy. For sure. I, uh, I've heard many tales from my grandmother who, who, you know, all through her schooling was taught by nuns. And uh, it's a different approach. It's, uh, and that was, of course, a long time ago. But I would imagine some of the people that, you, uh, that you're doing singing rehabilitation with are older. Yeah, I would. And grew up in a different time. And, totally. Uh, and, and that comes to play in their attitudes and self-perception, which yeah. is really sad. You, you mentioned that scientifically it's known that that's rarely the case. And I, I don't know much about the science behind this. I'd like you to comment on that a little oh, bit. Oh, boy. Because personally, I, I often hear people say, I can't sing. I have a terrible voice. I can't, you know, I can't sing in key. Um, or, you know, my voice just isn't good. And, you know, personally, I'm of the belief that if you can sing relatively in time and with decent pitch, you're a good singer. Um, I think all voices can be beautiful. Um, and, you know, even a certain amount of, of pitchiness can even be desirable at times. Uh, so personally, I've always had the conviction that, yeah, pretty much everybody can sing. It's not actually that hard. It does seem to be something that humans are kind of hardwired with. But it sounds like you know a little bit of, of the science behind it. So if you could comment on that, that would be really interesting. I don't think that I'm qualified to really comment on the science. But well, what I understand is that if you can speak, you can sing for the most part. It's a lot of the same physiological things happening in your body. And most of the time when someone believes that they are a non-singer, it's, it's mental. It's not physical. In this class, I've taught the class five or six times with 18 people in the class. We've never had someone who came through the class and we couldn't have them singing by the end of a seven week class. A little bit of attention, a little bit of one on one, a few tips about sensation or breath or what it feels like when you hear this note. Some people need a little bit more help directing to where the first pitch is. Often that's the, the problem mm. is, is getting the first pitch and then after that you're fine. Um, yep. but it's a, it's some neurological phenomenon when you hear a note and you can't make the same pitch but it's a very very small percentage of the population that actually has that neurological roadblock to to singing yeah it's like dysmusia you know people who who can't really hear music and can't interpret it the way most people are able to but that's extremely rare exactly i would imagine that the uh, the neurological roadblock you're describing is similarly uncommon yeah how did you learn these techniques to help people out? Is this something you had to be trained on? The, the founder of the organization, her name is Susan Knight, and she this is her life's calling. She's actually this fantastic woman who has 17 life callings and seems to have had 17 magnificent careers so far. Um, and she did the research and developed this program and trained several of, of us who are 
you know, pedagogues and choral musicians or, or singing teachers to start with helped us tweak our language and tweak our techniques to help non-singers rather than the singers that we're used to teaching. Was there ever a time when you believed you couldn't sing? No, I was lucky. I was, I don't know, grade three or something when I started singing in a choir and I didn't encounter any roadblocks before that. So I've been lucky to be a songbird my whole life. You are lucky. I, I absolutely believed I couldn't sing until around 14 or 15. And I didn't start doing choir until maybe age 17. You know, it's a way rougher road for boys. And I know you, I think so too. you and I both have boy kids that mm-hmm. it's so interesting already to be on that journey with my boys because traditionally boys have a harder time matching pitch. It, like when you're teaching kindergarten, 20% of the boys aren't singing the same pitches, but 5% of the girls aren't singing the same pitches. And if you don't take really careful care of those boys and help them find the sound and encourage the right sound, um, it's easy for them to feel like the odd odd boys out and feel that they can't sing. And then kids pick up on that stuff easily and early. Um, they don't feel drawn to it. And so then you have fewer boys joining choir. And then when your voice starts changing, that's like a whole other kettle of fish that a lot of people don't know how to address or make comfortable and you get all self-conscious and you lose a lot of boys at that age from singing permanently. So yeah, it's just, there's lots of landmines on the road to, to singing for boys and men, unfortunately. Also, I know when I was a child, uh, you know, it was sort of something that was would be made fun of. Yeah, for boys who are interested in singing. It yeah. was seen as, and I don't know why, but it was seen as, you know, a female activity. Yeah. Which is quite quite silly. Totally. Really. I mean, everybody listens to music and most people listen to music with singing in it. And a lot of people listen to music with men singing. So totally. why uh, choir or singing when you're a kid is associated with girls, I will never know. Well, and <laughs> but it's all the, the way it is. All the good, all the good high school choral conductors know that you know you could live and die on your tenor section and your bass section and any any teenager in choir knows that you know the boys are hot commodities and very popular in choir so if you figure that out you've paved your road to glory in high school from my experience but it's hard hard to get there absolutely i'm not a real tenor but i can sing in the tenor range i have to pull out the falsetto a little bit i I, honestly, anything above an E, I'm, uh, I either have to really be belting or I have to uh, start going into head voice. But, but I, I can't sing low enough to sing bass parts. I have this very awkward range that's kind of in between and it's kind of limited, um, although I can make it work. But it's true, being a tenor, you are always in demand. Uh, nobody wants you to leave the choir. You audition and you're going to get in as long as you can match pitch. Uh, even for audition-only choirs, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, it's just not a voice that is common enough. And I think it's because of that that self-selecting process that exactly. you're describing. It's exactly. very sad. Yeah, it is sad. And I see with my own children, who are quite young, that they love to sing. Mine, they too. love it. My kids so sing I hope, constantly. Yeah. I, absolutely. I think all kids do, because I think it is truly hardwired into into human beings. Uh, it's, you know, connected with language. And as you said, the same processes that make speech make singing happen. I've heard that as well. 
Although I, I also can't comment too much on the science. But I hope that doesn't happen with my own kids. And I, I sort of suspect it won't because of the, the family love for music and singing. But it's, it's quite sad that that happens to so many people. My own parents are both, quote, non-singers. <laughs> and in reality, they can sing just fine. Yeah. But there's that, that mental block. So when you are coming into a choir for the first time, what do you like to do to establish the rapport with the group or to establish your, your place as the, uh, as the leader? I recognize that's a very open-ended question. Yeah, so you can okay. take it. You can take it in any direction you want. I think for me, as I said, I'm all about the rehearsal. So for getting to know a new ensemble, we always start with warm-ups because that's a safe thing. We want everyone to feel you're not being judged. You're you're being welcomed into rehearsal, you know, with your voice. Let's sing together. But I, I, I barely ever do anything that's just for fun in a rehearsal. I would never do like, let's do this warm-up. 10 times in a row and not give a piece of feedback and, and say like, great, thanks for coming to rehearsal. Thanks for warming up, but get your ears on. We're going to work hard this rehearsal. So I generally like do quite a bit of stop and start at the beginning just to make it a vocal and a mental warm up at the beginning. Um, and I think it's about respect. So for me, showing respect is not wasting anyone's time, not talking too much about myself, not talking too much about the music, but rather getting everyone to dig in and make music together. Sometimes I have the tendency to drive too hard and fast and like overwhelm people. So I also try to be sensitive to that and notice when, okay, I came in. Occasionally I like forget to introduce myself or say like, we have a new person in the choir, stand up and introduce yourself. Cause I'm so like, let's jump in and have a great rehearsal. <laughs> and I catch those moments and I'm like, you know what? We just, you know, sang for 20 minutes without sitting down, take a break. We crack a joke. Everyone laughs so that the choir also understands like I'm also here to take care of us as a team and make sure that, that, you know, we're having a good time as well. Do you think that building a rapport is important? I do. I think it's important to trust each other because if you're if there's someone standing at the front of the room who's asking you to do something uncomfortable or that you don't understand, if you don't trust them, you're not going to jump in. You're not going to jump in with both feet. You're not going to try it out. And that's not respectful to the whole group. Then the whole group's not going to sound as good. So you need to make sure that you're kind of willing to play together and trust each other to to give it your best. Do you like singling people out? Like if somebody is, you know, not singing properly or, or do you prefer to find a diplomatic way to, uh, to communicate that? It depends on the ensemble. In my dream ensemble. Yes. I like sig signaling people, singling people out. Um, again, because it's the fastest way to make the choir sound better is to say like you, it's just a little flat or like to two sopranos sitting together. The vibrato isn't working between you two. Let's take a second and sort this out. If the group is willing for the critique to be on that level and to be individual, that's how you get the results the fastest. 
also in some choirs, if you do like, oh, alto twos, there's da da da, all of the alto twos think it's their fault and everyone stresses out. And that's not actually a kindness. But there are other choirs where if people are afraid that their voice, their voice is going to get singled out or their name is going to get called, then they'll never sing out. They'll, or they'll be afraid to come to rehearsal. And that's totally not the point of choir. So it, for me, it depends from ensemble to ensemble. And that's a bit of a contract that you have to negotiate with the choir, ideally before the first time you call someone's name so that everyone is kind of on the same page that this is how we're, this is how we're going to work. Do you think that there's a pattern as to which groups have more or less tolerance for being singled out? Do you think the the more accomplished groups, the more, you know, yeah, I want to say professional, but the the more experienced groups are are more open to it? Yeah, I think the more experienced a singer is, the more control they feel they have over their own voice so that if you call them out and ask them to do something, they feel that they have the skills to do that. And if they're not experienced enough a singer, it may feel that they just feel like, oh, I'm not good enough or I don't know how to do that. And that's really uncomfortable. So yeah, it only works if people feel confident that they're going to be able to take the feedback and do something with it. How do you navigate that delivering the feedback, but not making the person feel bad about themselves, not destroying that confidence or, or making the person, you know, resent you? Uh, I do my <laughs> best. Um, I'm, I try to be as gracious as possible. You know, like, uh, I think what I'm hearing is blah, blah, blah. Can we try it again? And then lavish praise when it gets better. Um, or talk to it like I talk to people in a more of a problem solving way, a collaborative way. Like, like I said, Sopranos, Soprano ones, you two right here. I think what I'm hearing is this. Could we try it again? Could you try something else and see if this is better rather than, hey, you, you know, this, that's wrong. You're flat, this kind of thing. So if we're, if we're truly a team and we're collaborating, then inviting singers in to collaborate with their voices and listen in a different way and see if we can solve the problem together. And by the way, just to be clear, my memory of you as a director is, is not that of someone who is mean and, and uh, cruelly singles people out. I yeah. have had that experience <laughs> and it can very much sour the relationship between the choir and the director. And that is very damaging to the music to the ensemble, it's it's not a good thing at all. Definitely, um, I so I've I, been the fact, in the those, fact that I'm re- yeah. yeah I've been in those rehearsals and I yeah I've felt the room shift when that happens. I am also the prototypical alto two who thinks that every comment is aimed at her, so I am sensitive to that kind of thing. And yeah, I I like to think that I'm pretty sensitive to group dynamics. And the other thing is that if you call someone out. And they, they're not game to be called out. You often feel the group like get protective of that person. So not mm. only have you alienated one tenor, you've actually alienated the whole tenor section who is now like, okay, we've got your back, buddy. We won't let the conductor call your name again. We're going to sing out or we're going to, you know, which is right. kind of lovely in a community, but like in terms of making the choir sound better, not ultimately fruitful. <laughs> So it's all about finding that balance. Yeah. I read on the website for the organization that you lead that you started your first uh, arts nonprofit at the age of 17. I did. That's quite impressive. When I was 17, 
I was an idiot and certainly <laughs> not not founding any organizations. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. It's very interesting. I, I chalked this up to coming from a small town. So I was 17. I sang in the good girls choir. I was an apprentice conductor for the children's choir. I had, I don't know, 15 or 20 students in my piano studio. And the girls choir was touring to Europe. We were going to Italy for two weeks, and that made it really hard to get a summer job over the summer. And I had a colleague in the choir who taught 20 students voice lessons, and her mom uh, was a music director at a church. And we were like, hey, why don't we just do a camp for the six weeks that we are available? Let's see what happens. You invite your voice students, I'll invite my piano students and the junior choir, and we'll see who shows up. And... I don't know if we were qualified or not to do it, but we did it for seven summers. We had hundreds of kids by the end of the program. We did, it was called Junior Jam, and we did um, like a weekly program where the kids would write their own piece of theater and write songs to go with it and create their costumes and the props. And they were elementary age school kids, and it was super fun, so much great experience like administrative experience running a business for the first time and teaching experience teaching all these kids and I don't know where we got the the moxie to do that I don't think we had a lot of like liability waivers signed back in the day and but it was it was great it was so much fun was there a lot of paperwork involved not that I remember I'm pretty sure we must have done permission forms or something I I remember buying popsicles for the Friday of every week and having the parents in. But And like this is where I learned I now do so much administration and have always like being a freelance musician actually means being a full time freelance administrator. It's where I got my first experience registering a nonprofit organization, running board meetings, account like doing basic accounting, stuff like that. So there must have been some paperwork involved, but I remember the craft supplies more than anything. You always remember the stuff that, the great stuff. Totally, the messy stuff. <laughs> the messy stuff, the sticky stuff. Um, so now, well, so first of all, what um, what brought about your move to Newfoundland? True love. True love. I, I came for grad school and I did a two-year degree in choral conducting here and at the time, I already had, I mean, I had my teaching certificate in Quebec, and I had a choral conducting job lined up. So I fell in love in Newfoundland and moved back to Montreal and had six years of freelancing in Montreal and conducting all the choirs I told you about before. But we were doing the long distance thing between Montreal and St. John's the whole time. And six years felt like enough. And Vernon has a tenured job at the university and we decided that that was probably the best place for us to start our lives together and have some kids and yeah the rest is history I've been here five years six years now and I I seem to recall that shortly after moving you you found yourself in a leadership position at uh, a nonprofit organization can you tell me a little bit about how that came to fruition oh it was so lucky it was just lucky I, I actually came and started a PhD and the PhD lasted two and a half weeks or something before I realized that th- this was not something I was going to be so invested in that I could, 
I could do it for five years and sort of throw my identity and my heart and soul into it. So I walked away from that pretty quickly and was like jobless and adrift in Newfoundland for eight days or something before this job opportunity kind of fell into my lap. I knew someone who was on the board who said, oh, they're looking for an admin assistant. They're just starting operations and you'd be great. And I interviewed with the person who was who was sort of acting CEO, but it was a board member who was leading things up. And we, we got along like gangbusters. And uh, he it, it quickly, like I was the general manager within two months and the executive director within six months. And we have been like building programs and changing communications plans and sort of um, iterating the organization over the last six years. It's been it's been really fun. So tell me about this organization. What uh, What's the mandate of this organization? We are called Business and Arts Newfoundland and Labrador. And we believe that the arts are a critical part of the ecosystem in Newfoundland, culturally, obviously, but also economically. Newfoundlanders have a reputation for being highly resilient and creativity is at the heart of that resilience. And our work encourages the arts community to improve their business practices in order to be sustainable and resilient and encourages the business community to engage with the arts community in lots of different ways because we believe the business community has lots to gain from being invested in the creative side of the world. So in slightly more concrete terms, what what is the connection that's being made between business and arts? Artists are gaining business skills from the business community, learning to do better financial management, having access to pro bono help from lawyers so that contracts are secure at the beginning and not after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, marketing practices are better so that artists are doing a better job of advertising themselves and finding customers so they can do a precise job of that and spend more time in the studio doing what they're meant to be doing. The business community is starting to appreciate that uh, dealing with the arts can be really valuable for your team, can lead to enhanced leadership within your team, can build creativity among your employees, and that also it's good for the community if we're supporting a strong cultural sector. It makes Newfoundland look like somewhere where people want to move and bring their families and start careers And so there's an economic development piece as well. We do like networking events, communications things, workshops. We're doing a big project right now with design thinking, which is this problem-solving methodology that's sort of steeped in the creative method, but it's used in technology companies and healthcare companies and stuff like this. So helping, helping incubate the idea that creativity feeds into the private sector. Yeah, so I was reading, I was perusing the website uh, yesterday and stumbled on some copy about design thinking. Could you go into maybe a little bit more detail about what design thinking is, where this idea comes from, and and how it's made relevant in the work you do? Yeah, yeah. Design thinking is um, sort of based in the idea that in order to design a product that is really satisfying at a human level, you need to, you can't just make the obvious solutions. 
You need to talk to people. You need to have empathy for the customer and you need to understand their experience and you need to map it out and understand what are the pain points, what are their real issues. Sometimes what someone says is their problem isn't actually the problem. So you need to dig deeper and understand all of the things that surround the way that a customer or a user is using your product. And then you need to come up with a million ideas for how to solve it. You need to brainstorm and iterate and come up with multiple solutions before you can be expected to find the right solution or the way that you're going to go. And this is a really uncomfortable concept in a lot of traditional business models where you want to find the solution, work on it, market it. And this is where we talk about how it overlaps with the creative method, where creative people, musicians are awesome at failing we're so used to it we fail so many auditions we spend so much time practicing and sucking at it and feeling like you're never going to get better but that resilience and that um that tolerance for risk and tolerance for failure is actually one of the real riches that creative people possess because the more you fail, the more opportunities you have to learn, to get it right, to iterate, to improve. And design thinking takes this appetite for failure, this willingness to try a million quick solutions to find the right one, and makes it a safe methodology that you can do with a team of non-creative or people who don't identify as creative people, but who have a real understanding of your your product that you're trying to design or the problems in your workplace and allow people to feel safe to come up with a whole bunch of ideas in order to solve a, to solve a problem. So you think the creative people are valuable in the world of problem solving? Definitely. Creative people are definitely valuable. And we're seeing lots of, lots of data about how creativity is actually the number one skill, like trait that employers are looking for. And it's hard to find when you're looking for that in a combined skill set, like a computer programmer who's also creative, an engineer who's also creative. So we can't just like hire painters to go into, I don't know, video game design companies, but finding ways to help people be creative in, in their jobs is something that's really interesting to me and the work we're doing at Business and Arts. Yeah. And I think this is something that we hear a lot about uh, and that certainly the smarter people in the private sector are looking for more and more. They're looking for diversity. They're looking for creativity. They're looking for arts skills. I want to just talk a little bit about the role of arts in education. Um, you mentioned, and, and we've sort of danced around this topic a little bit, but the idea that these things are always on the chopping block. Um, personally, I had a wonderful arts education, particularly with music in school. I am lucky enough to have gone to a school where there was a thriving, I'm going to just call it a music scene. You know, lots of people who who sung in, in choirs, played in the bands, but also a lot of people who would form their own groups, who would do stuff independently of school. And it was nurtured by the school system. There were a lot of opportunities within the structure of the school system to perform, to get together, to learn an instrument, to learn music theory, to learn music history. Um, but also there was a lot of encouragement to, you know, take initiatives and take ownership of that creativity. And it absolutely guts me to think that my own kids might not have that, that, you know, due to the passage of time and due to the, the trends we've seen in economics and policy, that these programs are going away 
And I, I shudder to think of what they're being replaced with. I mean, I kind of know what they're being replaced with, which is more reading, more math. Well, reading and math are very important. But, you know, I learned reading and math, and I was also able to learn how to play the clarinet and the guitar and how to sing four-part harmony. Um, we have, I think, there's enough space to learn all these skills. Is this some, so You did mention that this is something you see happening in Newfoundland. Is this something that, that you worry about with your own kids? Is this something you worry about with society writ large? Yeah. So, sadly, it's not something I worry about with my own kids because we have enough money to make sure that my kids get an arts education no matter what. That is tragic. That's what I worry about. That, A... What happens to all of the kids in the families who can't afford it? And B, what does that mean about music if music or, you know, or ballet or theater are only things that people who can afford it have access to? That is truly heartbreaking. And I think that's the thing that we have to push back against in the school system. Um, yeah. And, and also like the, the shape of a school day. If the shape of a school day is do it right, get your work done go outside for recess, come back in, do it right, get your work done. What kind of little humans are we are we raising? So I, in my ideal world, kids would have artistic expression, chance to play around, chance to, to make sound and make something beautiful without it being judged harshly one way or another, chance to improvise with their friends and, yeah, explore different artistic media. Um, and, yeah, it's definitely something that, lives on the chopping block. When I was in university getting degrees in music and education, I would say 50% of my music education courses, something came up about how you need to advocate to your administration on behalf of your program, the things you, the strategic things you need to do in order to demonstrate your value to the school community in order to make sure that your program doesn't get cut. Like that's part of education as a music teacher. And that was the case when I was in school as well. I remember hearing the music teachers often talk about how they had to advocate to their administration, how they had to advocate to um, even higher uh, echelons of the system. They would have to, you know, get together with other music teachers and advocate at the state level, advocate. I grew up in the U.S., <laughs> um, so not provincial level, but state level. Um, and this was in Vermont, a state which I think generally uh, has a pretty comfortably financed education system in general but nonetheless that advocacy was absolutely necessary to just preserve what had been built because i think a lot of the bean counters don't see the value in it they yeah. don't it's it's intangible to a certain degree although from my understanding there are measurable benefits to music education and I remember my music teachers bringing these up all the time. And we were always kind of <laughs> drilling them into the students' heads so that the students would go on to be advocates. Until their think parents not. Hey, <laughs> please vote for the person who's not going to cut music. Well, but I, I think it's important. And I think it's the more people know about these things, uh, the better off we all are. But from my understanding, there is there are measurable benefits. And now to play an instrument. Yeah. And now the movement is STEAM rather than STEM. And that's good because that puts that important A back in STEAM. Um, we need to make sure that there are quality arts offerings and then they're not arts offerings that um, sort of 
are meant to highlight the scientific offerings. It's not like a beautiful color page on your science report card, but it's actually art for art's sake. Um, but there's definitely lots of talk about that. And I think that's fantastic. And that's, that's had a big impact already, but it's, uh, it's never going to go away as a conversation. We need to always make sure that we're keeping it in the forefront and advocating for art for art's sake, but also the societal value, the educational value. So we've been talking about advocacy. Does your job entail a lot of advocacy? Yes. My job entails more communications than I think the organization thought when we started because we have an, we have an amazing board, 18 people on our board who are mostly business executives who really get it. People from oil companies and universities and law firms and film production studios who truly get and live and understand the value of culture to our society. Mm. And the, some of the sort of first decisions the organization made before I took the job revolved around bringing the business community into the conversation. And that has been harder to do than we thought. And so we spend a lot of time hosting events, bringing members of the public into a behind the scenes experience in a theater company to learn what it takes to produce a piece of theater, how many people are involved in that team, What's the infrastructure? What's the timeline? What's the funding like? What does the Canada Council contribute? What does the local arts council contribute? How much do ticket sales boost the boost the revenue of a production? Understanding all of the inner workings and the and the the outcomes from a piece of theater or something like this to sort of stimulate a deeper understanding and appreciation of why the arts exist and what they're bringing to society. And that's been a bigger part of our work than I think we anticipated when we set out. Now, another form of advocacy I know you've been involved with relates to safe singing. And this is very relevant to the times we're in, but safe singing in the context of COVID-19. So for any listeners who who haven't heard, uh, there's a pandemic. We're in the middle of it. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's an airborne... Uh, it's not a flying virus, but it's a virus that's transmitted through um, respiratory droplets. So I think there's this common belief that singing is dangerous because you're you're taking in big, deep breaths and then you're exhaling those big, deep breaths. And you're doing so with a group of, you know, 15 to 40 or 50 or 100 other people all in a room together. And, you know, you're spreading your droplets and you're potentially spreading the virus. Now, I know this partially because we talked about it a little bit beforehand when we were preparing for this interview, and also partially from seeing a little bit on social media because I'm connected with you on social media, and so I've seen you posting about it. But can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So early days in March, there was a choir. There were a few, maybe two or three of these that happened around the world, but one in California where something like 60 singers got together for a rehearsal. They were physically distanced, but this was early on in public health measures. And like they passed around a bowl of fruit at break and someone handed out scores and there was someone there opening the door for everyone. So there were like multiple points of contact. Everyone helped right. stack their chairs at the end of the night, this kind of thing. And there was someone with COVID-19 there and 45 
of those choristers ended up getting it and two people ended up dying. Which is horrible. Horrible. Like just, it's a nightmare. And the news spread very quickly. Every person I know shared that story on social media and we all had this huge emotional fear reaction to that. Like this is, this could happen to us and it had a ripple effect. So choir was then like in the news media talking about, you know, extra dangerous activities like singing in choir and, you know, droplets can spread three times as far if you're singing loud and things like this. And I think the term they use is super spreader, super spreader activities and things like this. And now that the emotional reaction has sort of subsided a little bit and the logical reaction is coming into play. We're trying to find the science that really outlines this because if we take that at face value and don't look very carefully, like a lot of it wasn't even acknowledging the fact that they were passing out fruit, sharing snacks, stuff like this at break. It was like, Oh, they were socially distanced. And so therefore choir can kill. Um, If we just take that at face value, governments are going to, make choral singing um, prohibited until the end of the pandemic and it will kill choirs. It will kill music education programs and it will cause huge mental health problems for the hundreds of thousands or millions of Canadians who sing in choirs in Canada. And so we've been pushing back. The choral community has been saying, please wait, please don't cancel all choral activities. Let's look for the science. There's a big study specific to uh, wind instruments and singing coming out at University of Colorado. It was supposed to be released on July 25th, and we're all updating the website every day waiting for those results to come out. Another study, another group in, in Germany that's doing really, really relevant work and updating results all the time, waiting for the science to come out that tells us exactly what. No one's expecting you know, 25 people sitting chair to chair in a rehearsal. But if there are some reasonable constraints that could be set around the definition of safe singing, then we can let choral conductors and musicians who are all naturally very creative people take those constraints and figure out how to make music with their groups together if it's safe to do so. And so, yeah, I've been working with other choral conductors in Newfoundland petitioning the chief medical officer to hold off on making any overly strong recommendations against choral singing until we can figure out what the science actually says about what is safe. Now, I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a moment. I think some people would hear that and say, well, okay, but, you know, this is a pandemic. People are dying. This is causing all sorts of economic hardship. You know, we're probably looking at a significant recession who knows how bad it will be and, and how bad it will be in various countries. But but we know it's not a great situation. People are out of work. Uh, so many activities have been canceled. Uh, you know, there are, people are still dealing with having kids at home. Daycare is closed. Why should governments concern themselves with choral singing, which is a, a niche activity, which, you know, you said that there are millions of Canadians who participate in it. But I think most people would look at choral singing and say, this is a niche activity. This is a this is a luxury of people who have the time to do it. Why should governments be, you know, spending their policy hours on choral singing when they could be focusing on, you know, getting the economy strong and, you know, beefing up personal protective equipment and so on and so forth. Why is choral music in this context worth fighting for? 
and why should we care? Yeah, I mean, I put that very, in very brutal terms. No, I hear you, and I get it. And we've been having a lot of those conversations. Like we get it. Being, I do not envy the position of anyone who's in a public policy decision-making place right now, who's having to weigh all of these decisions. And I get it that nurses and doctors need to be funded. Tests, testing needs to be funded. PPE needs to be funded. And I don't argue that any of those things need to come first. Absolutely. And yeah, the economic fallout is going to be long and hard. We're going to be waiting a long time for those things to come back. A report I read maybe two months ago said that in a year's time, 30% of arts organizations across the country are going to be bankrupt. I hope that's not the case, but I'm afraid it might be. And yeah, that's all fair. But what are people going to do between now and when the economy comes back or between now and when they get their jobs back or between now and whatever this sort of imaginary line on the horizon when everything is okay again is, they are going to look for ways to connect with each other. They are going to look for ways to express themselves. They are going to look for ways to distract themselves. They are going to want to look at music that tells stories of how people have survived stuff in the past. They are going to want to you know, find a way to boost their mental health, have a rush of endorphins. And choral music provides all of these things and connects people across the community, including children who are very vulnerable right now because they've been locked away at home for months and months, and including people over the age of 60 who are very isolated. I don't think that people over 60 are going to be running into choir practice, but their choral communities are going to be finding ways to reach them online and finding safe ways to connect them. And yeah, it's not, um, we're not asking people to, to put aside 1% of the federal budget to save choirs, but we're just asking for help to make it safe so we can, we can continue to, as all arts organizations do, rub our pennies together in order to make something magical happen. That's more or less the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> do you think that there is, so you think that there is actually a public health benefit to allowing people to safely get together and sing? I think from the mental health perspective, I think anything we can do to hold on to a semblance of normalcy is really important. And I think anything we can do to connect people is really important. And if choral, if choir is what you do to connect to people, let's find a way to let you keep doing that. I think if people can start going to bars again, then singing, I mean, to me, that's a higher priority. Well, and in a bar, you're like leaning over a table yelling in the face of the person across the table from you because the music's so loud at least in choir you have the decorum not to like sing into each other's faces so it can't be you lead (laughs) we don't have any beer in rehearsal either most of the time so you mentioned the tremendous fallout economic fallout and how it's going to touch arts organizations you mentioned that something like 30 percent will be bankrupt within the year which is a very scary thought I wonder, in your opinion, what do we do as people who value these organizations? And I hope I've made it clear that I'm one of them, and certainly you are as well. What do we do after this pandemic ends? Whatever that that moment is, I'm hoping for a vaccine, and we can just deploy it, and everybody's immune, and 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 we can put this we can put this chapter behind us. But what do we do when that moment comes to rebuild? to get these organizations back on their feet, to to maybe create new ones in their place. Because to me, part of getting over this pandemic is going to have to be building back the things that have been destroyed. 
rebuilding the carnage. So what do we do to stop the bleeding as much as possible, but more importantly, to, you know, rise like the phoenix from the ashes when the flames have finally stopped burning? Yeah, I. so I'm going to just tweak that back to you a little bit and say I see it more as like new growth after a forest fire that it might not be what I was trying to allude to yeah that it might not be sort of things growing back exactly the the way they once were but finding opportunities for stronger things to grow back in their place I mean 30% feels inflammatory I hope that's not it and I hope that organizations that decide not to fight and sometimes I think that that's actually the brave thing to do to say like you know what we this isn't the time for us to be making art or making music or making theater we're just going to go away and write scripts or practice what we do or write songs and then when the dust settles we'll we'll rise up out of the ashes or we'll we'll start to grow again what non-performers or non-artists can do is buy tickets buy a t-shirt of your favorite band now to show them like I've got your back Uh, buy a gift certificate to a theater that you know you're going to go to once it's safe again sometimes $25 increments actually have a huge impact so you can put your money where your mouth is if you have any money to share around you can tell stories about your favorite you know experience going to a concert so that people are ready to do that once that opportunity is there for them again and help people understand that this cultural life that is there and waiting for us is something that's of value and something that we're all going to be yearning for as soon as it's safe to to jump back in again. I do actually want to touch on one last topic. I hopefully won't take too long. Um, When we talk about choirs, there are many kinds of choirs that sing many different styles of music from pop uh, jazz, um, but a lot of choirs sing what we call classical music, what, uh, you know, romantic music, classical era, Bach, you know, Baroque, what, what have you. And even before the times of COVID that we find ourselves in, there was a bit of a crisis as I see it in the world of that kind of music, which is the audiences are aging to a large extent. The participants are aging this style of music is maybe not dying, but it is certainly getting gray hairs. What do choirs do, or more larger than that, what do choirs, orchestras, chamber groups do to combat this sort of slow death that is taking place in the world of classical music? Do you see any hope for it? Oh, I think it's actually think it's a really exciting challenge. I do not have any of the answers, but it feels like if you're not careful, we could be sort of reenacting concerts that happened in 1850. It could be like this very strange thing that happens in 20, let's say 22, when there are audiences again, where people are wearing black clothing, just like people did in 1850. And they're standing up at the front of a church, just like they did in 1850. And they're singing the same music and that an art form hasn't evolved at all over time. And that's a bit bizarre to me. And I like to think about how you can take this art form, take this heritage that we've inherited, and a lot of the music written back then 
sounds amazing when people sing it and tells stories that are still relevant or exclaims texts that are still relevant to things that happen today, it's okay to sort of stand on the shoulders of the people who built this culture, but it needs to somehow reflect the year 2020, 2022, whatever, needs to reflect the makeup of the community that we're singing in, needs to reflect the time that we live in. And so how do we evolve our art form to reflect the time that we live in and the community in which we're participating. And for me, those answers involve like ideally not always singing in churches, which are polarizing, which sound great a lot of the time, unfortunately, but don't have to be the only place where classical music happens. It involves not always standing at the front of the church and singing at the audience, but finding other ways to involve the audience in the sound and the experience. So having the choir move around the audience, change the way they're standing so that it changes the listener's experience. And then looking at repertoire that's written by people who are alive, people who live in our country, who are talking about stories and voices of things that are happening in this day. And I think there needs to be a balance because hey, Mendelssohn is always going to sound good. Mendelssohn's always going to be good for choirs to sing. And there's always going to be someone in the audience for whom that's the favorite piece. So there needs to be a place on the program for that. But it, it can't be the only thing and it can't be every concert, in my opinion. When you're building a concert, um, let me re- re-ask that because I terrible slip of the mind. <laughs> when, you're built, when, you're, when you're building a concert program, that's the word. Oh, my God. When you're building a program for a concert, what do you do to thread that needle to make sure that the music is going to be relevant and sort of please as much of the audience as you can without being overly crowd pleasing, without just, uh, you know, throwing ear candy at the audience? Yeah, I don't. I tend not to veer towards the side of ear candy. I think I tend to veer a little towards the side of like, we're going to surprise you and we hope you like it. Um, I usually start with a central work, something that I know my choir can sing really well, but that will be a challenge and that we all want to sink our teeth into and set that as the axis point of the program. With Project, generally speaking, those are works written by living composers and are written sort of for 16 voices or more. So complex pieces where everyone has their, their own part to sing. And then build the program out from there and include something that sounds great in the first rehearsal so that we have one piece that is like, ah, we can just sing this and it feels good and it sounds good. Something that can be sung either like without seeing each other or with the lights off or standing in a big circle around the audience. So we have something that's going to be that different physical experience for the audience and for the choir. Something alienating, like something that doesn't sound good, but has a good reason for being on the program. Something a bit avant-garde. Totally. Like something with weird sounds and unexpected and, you know, something that no one's ever heard before, for sure. Um, Something that feels like a hot bath that just feels beautiful and luxurious. Something by a Canadian or a woman to make sure that it is reflecting our community and that it's not mostly guys, mostly dead. Um, and yeah, a nice, a nice variety. And that, but I also like my programs to be, to sort of tell a little bit of a narrative or to have an arc of some sort, like to move from one concept to another or two, two poles of an issue from darkness to light or 
or, you know, different perspectives on the sea or things like this so that there's, so it's a journey for the audience, for not just um, one piece after another that sounds good. Well, now is a great time to start thinking <laughs> about future. <laughs> Lots of time to plan programs these days. Yeah, exactly. Amy, thank you. This was a really illuminating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for the invitation. It was really fun.